for the opportunity to share with you guys this morning. Just that song, the first service, just, if you weren't here, just wrecked me. <laughs> just absolutely wrecked me. That line, when I see that cross, I'll see freedom. But when I see that grave, I'll see Jesus. To stand in confidence of the power of God, to stand in confidence of the power of the cross, that our adversary who wants to seek and kill and destroy cannot even use death as a threat against us because when we close our eyes, we open them in the presence of our God. That he has nothing, he has nothing against us. When we see that grave, that's the best he's got. That's the best the enemy has is the grave. And the Lord conquered it. And we will open our eyes and we'll be in his presence. We will worship before him. And when we see that grave, we'll see Jesus. But if he tarries, but we're asking the Lord, bring us home before then, right? Get us out of here, <laughs> please. <laughs> Rescue us. We want to be with you. We want to hear from you now. So this morning, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be studying the first, well, my initial plan don't believe your bulletin. We're not getting that far today. <laughs> Just put it that way. But the Lord, uh, believing the Lord has something for us. As I was preparing for this morning and, you know, just seeking the Lord and asking for his direction on what to share and what he's doing in, in my life and in the world and kind of led me to do something that he different in the sense that he hasn't done before where I really just want to share with you guys the things that the Lord has been putting on my heart as I've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians in my own time with the Lord and, and, and meditating on his word and, and these passages and these verses and thinking about just the context of the book and looking out in the world and the things that he's doing in my life and in, in the world around us. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I just kind of want to share, hopefully the things will come across clearly, the things that the Lord has been speaking to me about. So we're just going to start right in 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 1. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So introduced to two men here in verse 1, Paul and this other man named Sosthenes. We're probably way more familiar with Paul than, than this other guy. It's because there's not too much that Scripture has to say about this guy Sosthenes. If you read in Acts chapter 18, specifically in verse um, in 17, he's mentioned. The context of that passage is the Jews in Achaia where Paul is. They want to bring Paul before Gallio to be judged for him to enact judgment upon Paul. Um, but Gallio is like, listen, this is y'all's problem. Y'all got issues with Paul. He's one of yours. Y'all deal with him. I don't want anything to do with it. And so he gives Paul back over to the Jews for them to judge how they wanted to be judged. And they take Sosthenes. And so this is where we see him. And Sosthenes was the ruler of the synagogue in, in that area in Achaia. And the Jews come and they take him out of the synagogue and they beat him. And 
if this is the same guy, I'm no, not sure necessarily 100%, but this is the same guy, and he's with Paul in Ephesus as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, I think that's, that's pretty cool. That says a lot about who this guy is, his character as a man of God, that even in the midst of the, the, the law of man and the doctrine of man that the Jews were pushing on people, he as a man of God upheld the, the word of God to the point where they would pull him out of the synagogue and beat him because he was faithful to the word of God. So that's who that guy is. And we're going to leave him now. In verse 2, Paul says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth. And as I was thinking about the location of this church in this city, probably the, the greatest, like, just one of the greatest cities in the ancient world during biblical times is the city of Corinth. And to have a church in the midst of that, I feel, is very Similar, and the things that they face are very similar to the things that the church faces today, similar to the things that we face today. Corinth was full of idolatrous religions, full of it. I mean, just absolutely everywhere. There was multiple temples to gods from all different backgrounds and demographics, uh, uh, gods of, uh, you know, like uh, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, uh, temples all over the place to the goddess Hermaphrodite. And while they idolatry in our age is probably not as in your face. It's nonetheless, it's very rampant in our culture is idolatry. It just presents itself in more subtle ways like the worship of self or the pursuit of pleasure and entertainment or obtaining a higher level of knowledge. And we make those things our idols instead. That's what the world puts in place of God. On top of that, the geographic location of Corinth made it very easy for businessmen to be very profitable. Lots of Easy access to commerce and trade routes, some shipping and all that kind of stuff is a very profitable, very wealthy and prosperous city. And a lot of times what comes with that naturally is what we see in in our world today and in the city of Corinth. That also meant that it was a very degraded, perverted and over-sexualized culture. One commentator I read stated that Corinth was the New York, Los Angeles and Las Vegas combined of the ancient world. Yeah, just meditate on that for a second. David Guzik said that the term Corinthia Zomai was well known in the Roman Empire at the time, and it meant literally to live like a Corinthian, but everyone knew it really meant to just be sexually out of control. That was the reputation. And summed up, another commentator said that the, of the city of Corinth, that it was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. And if we look at just those three phrases alone, I think it's easy to see the similarities between Corinth and and the state of our nation today and the world that we live in. What's important, though, is to to recognize that we are not immune to, to letting the perspectives and the pressures of the culture infiltrate the church or infiltrate our thinking in our everyday life. I think it's foolish to think that we are just because we're safe, so to speak, in these four walls or whatever the case may be. Because if we, if, we if we don't know what God's word says, that's why we put such importance on it. We hold it to such a high standard. That's why this and this alone is the authority of my life. If, if we don't know, if I don't know what this says, if I don't know how to look at the world and use this as a lens to see the world, if I'm not letting God's word transform my mind then it's, it's easy to conform to the world because our flesh wants to do that naturally. 
(laughs) My flesh doesn't want to get in this and be transformed by it. I have to get in this. I have to be dedicated to that. I have to let the Holy Spirit do that. I have to let the Word do that. But if I'm not doing that naturally, I'm going to be conformed to the world. And the world is already bombarding and blasting us with its ideas and everything everywhere we turn to try to get us distracted from the Word, to try to get us to conform to its standard. And so we're not immune to letting these things infiltrate our mind. And a lot of times it happens in, in subtle ways when maybe we don't even notice. The enemy is crafty. He knows how to get underneath our skin and into our hearts and in ways we don't even realize. And I was talking with uh, Pastor Tom and, and Pastor Justin last week, and we were talking about this idea that historically the, the church has not done a great job at residing in a sinful culture, but also trying to impact that culture for the gospel. Historically, the church has not done great at that. Because what n- happens is normally one of two things. We either, the church is either tries to be so relevant and connect with culture that they lose the power of the message of the gospel, or they put so much emphasis and focus on the message that they no longer have an audience in the culture to actually give that message to. And so Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians to address, to rebuke, to correct many different wrong actions or ways of thinking that the church there in Corinth had allowed and engaged in that, had be, that were contrary to Jesus, contrary to his teachings, contrary to his word, contrary to the, the apostles' doctrine, and contrary to the way a Christian should be living. And I think that carnality that Paul addresses is for a lot of reasons, but I think can stem from really two things. And I think it comes from, one, not keeping the gospel the center of every part of our lives, and two, not being surrendered fully to God's wisdom in his way of living in the way that he says our life should be lived. Right? It can all kind of boil down to those two things because that's what the world is saying is, no, our way of living is better. The wisdom of God, you don't need that. We submit to his wisdom. And if we compromise on either of those things, we compromise on keeping the gospel the center or if we compromise on living in submission to the, the wisdom of God, it's easy for us to become the, the different, the bookends or the pendulum of those two different ways that the church has gone that I was just talking about, right? If we compromise on either of those things, we either become so relevant that we don't have a message or we compromise on his wisdom and then it's like we are all about the message, but who are we actually speaking to? Both things have to be present in the church to have the right impact on the culture around us. And it, I, I emphasize the right impact because the church can have an impact on the culture. But it doesn't mean it's always the right one. It doesn't mean it's always a good one. Both of those things have to be present for the right impact. And when I think about the church of Corinth in the midst of all that, and I see a similarity with the church today in the midst of the culture that we are in today, the church in Corinth was perfectly positioned to have an impact on the culture around it. And we're going to talk about some of the things of why. But instead, the culture had infiltrated the church and impacted the church. And so, in order for those two focuses, the gospel at the center and submission to the wisdom of God, to be present in our church, to be a church that impacts the culture and impacts those that are around us, the reality is they first have to be present in our lives individually first. Because we are the church. You are the church. People. 
It's not a building. It's not a, a building's stance on Jesus. It's your personal stance on who Jesus is and your personal commitment to the gospel and submission to the wisdom of who he is and his ways of living. And so if, if that is the case and we are keeping those two things at the center and we're willing to do that to be a church that impacts the culture around us, I think there will be certain things that will be present within our walks that we can see from Scripture if we're doing those things. And so the first, the first one I, I want to just mention or talk about is if we're submitting to the gospel and we're submitting to the wisdom of God, then what will be present in our life, firstly, will be we'll be able to receive correction. Paul, when he says, I was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, he understood deeply that this calling was from God. This was not his decision. This was not his choice, right? It was a supernatural calling from the, according to the will of God. First Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. This is why Paul was able to write this letter in confidence, calling out the sins of his Corinthian brothers and sisters so boldly and confidently. Not just because he had to defend his credentials as an apostle, not just because he had um, such a heart for, for his brothers and sisters there in Corinth. He had an endearing heart towards them because he spent so much time with them. It wasn't just because of those things. It was because it was through the will of God that he had been called to this position of apostleship. And so he understood that he had a, a duty and a responsibility that God had called him to, that God himself had called him to, and he wasn't going to compromise or, or shy away from those responsibilities just because he wanted to protect the feelings of his brothers and sisters. Paul wasn't going to do that. And it's easy, I think, to say, because we understand on this side of the completed word of God who Paul was, and we know his character, and we know his effect on the ministry, and we know his ability, and the sufferings, and the trials that he went through, and the, and the people, and the faith that he had, and the people that he impacted for the gospel, and it's easy to look at it and be like, well, yeah, it was Paul. Like, no wonder he was able to have that boldness. Like, it was Paul. I think we forget, though, that this same Paul, in this same city of Corinth, was the place that the Lord had to tell Paul in Acts 18, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or hurt you, for I have many people in this city. This was the same Paul in the same city. He was afraid. He felt like he was alone, like there was nobody else out there. He was the only believer. The, the culture's around him. They're pressing in on him. And the Lord has to tell him specifically, do not be afraid. Speak. Do not keep silent. I've got many people in this city. And if we look at verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And we know from Acts 18 that he was with the Corinthians for a year and a half. A year and a half. And he says, I was with you in fear, and in weakness, and in much trembling. We don't think about Paul like that. We don't think about Paul as someone who had this kind of, who had this kind of weakness where being around this culture or being amidst this church and, and the environment actually left him fearful and weak. And so the question I have to ask then is why would he be afraid? Why would the Lord have to command Paul to speak and encourage him that God was with him? Why would he have to do that, not understanding who Paul is? And I think the reason is similar to the, to the words that the Lord tells um, Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. If you want to turn there real quick, if not, I'm going to read it to you. Joshua chapter 1, 
beginning in verse 6, the Lord speaking to Joshua says, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so we see three times that God has to give this exhortation to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Only be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. And the first time he commands that and exhorts Joshua in that is, in regards to dividing the land that the Lord had promised to the people anyways. Joshua, you're going to be the guy to go out and divide all the inheritance that these people have been waiting for for generations. You're going to be the guy to go out and do it. Be strong and, good, and of good courage. And Joshua, I'm like, heck yeah, that sounds easy. Like, <laughs> that's what the people have been waiting for anyways. I get to be the guy that the Lord uses to do that. Like, that's awesome. Yeah, I can be courageous in that. But in the second and third time that the Lord says this to him, it kind of bookends this idea that the Lord is telling Joshua, yeah, but you're also going to have to deliver my word and hold people accountable to it. And you're going to have to do that while my people are surrounded by a pagan culture. That's a little bit more daunting. Wait, so I'm like, I'm going to what? <laughs> I got to do what? It's the same thing for Paul. He's having to deliver correction, deliver and hold accountable to the word of God in the midst of a culture that doesn't honor the Lord. And so Paul knew, I think, and understood that he was going to offend people, but he was not going to shy away from holding them accountable to God's standard, even if it ruffled some feathers. It was going to bring trials. It was going to bring confrontation. And I don't, I don't know about you, but in, in my line of work and sphere that the Lord has me in, like confrontation is like a four-letter word. <laughs> like nobody wants to do it. Nobody likes confrontation. Nobody likes iron sharpening iron. No one likes that kind of friction. But Paul says, regardless if that's the outcome, I'm going to be faithful. But he says, that's why he was saying, like, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. I realized the result of what I'm going to say. And that word trembling means to be used to describe the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability completely to meet all requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. Someone who, regardless of the anxiety, they distrust in their own ability completely to fulfill the requirements of what's asked of them, but instead religiously do their utmost to fulfill their duty. That's the type of man I want to be. And I pray that's the type of men and women that we want to be. Men and women of God who, despite the anxiety, despite the confrontation, despite the fear that comes with the thing that God asks of us, and namely talking about addressing sin in someone else's life, regardless of that, can we distrust completely in our ability to do that? And instead, do our utmost to fulfill our duty, knowing that it's what the Lord has told us to do. One of the best things that you can do, that we can do in the body of Christ to serve our brother or sister is to call them out on sin in their lives. 
Because Paul would go on to describe the church of God, which is at Corinth. He said, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. You could put our name in the midst of that verse. To the church of God, which is at Calvary Chapel, Orlando. To those who are sanctified, we have all been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place, gathering this morning, gathering around the world in the body of Christ, we call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. We have been sanctified and joined together by him. Our culture tells us that no one has the right to tell you what to do. That you just do you that you just go and pursue whatever makes you happy, that no one has the ability to tell you how to live your life. That is not the word of God. I am standing before you now giving each and every one of you permission that if you see me living in a way that is not according to the word, you better come at me. <laughs> like, beat me over the head with the Bible if you need to, because I need it. That's what we're called to do because we love one another, because we are all sanctified, we are all called. But if we're looking at just wanting to go and give correction because we just want to be justified in our frustrations or we're doing it in a way that is ungodly or unloving, then that's not, that's not the point. We also have to be able to receive the correction as well. That I have to humble myself under the authority of the word of God and be open to, to anyone saying, hey, have you noticed this in your life? Have you noticed this in your marriage? Have you, have you noticed this in, in the things you're doing in your ministry? Have you, have you noticed this in, in your own walk with the Lord? Hey, you're, you're, what's going on? Have you noticed this in your parenting? Now, I was reminded uh, a couple weeks ago when we dedicated Nathan and, and Ollie up here. What a beautiful time that is to dedicate children to the Lord and commit and stand in with Peter and Uni and committing to raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And, and Will asks us, you know, if you're committing to stand alongside them in this endeavor as godly parents, please stand to show that you're committing to that. And everybody stands. And I thought to myself, are we doing this because we're told to? Or because we actually understand what we're doing and we're going to follow through with it? That we're actually going to hold each other accountable in our parenting and in our marriages and in our walks, in our ministries, in our friendships. There are so many unbiblical ideas specifically regarding parenting that are out there. And I mean, that's not the point of what I'm saying this morning, but we can't do it alone. We need one another. And we need to be able to humble ourselves to receive correction in even the most sensitive areas of our lives. Proverbs ten seventeen says, He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. We need to keep that. We don't want to be the one who refuses what the Lord might be trying to say to us and, and ends up walking away. So do you let people speak into your life in this way? Even though the believers in Corinth had lots of problems, 
It's beautiful that Paul could still see the work that God could do in them because he knew of what they were capable of if they only properly surrendered to the wisdom of God and, and properly applied the gospel to every single part of their life. Because he would go on in, in verse 4 and say, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. It's so important when we're bringing this correction to have this heart of thankfulness towards the person on the basis of nothing else other than knowing that the grace of God has been extended to them in the same way that the grace of God has been extended to us. And so we're not bringing correction in a holier-than-thou kind of way. We're bringing correction under the grace of God. Even in our, their sin, even in our own sin, God's grace just continues to expound and abound abundantly toward us. And so whenever it's easy for us to look out at the world and, and see the condition of the, uh, the church and be, get, get frustrated sometimes, no matter how disheartening it might be, we have to always first consider that the grace of God has been extended towards them. And it's not our place to think of ourselves as better than them. The grace of God is extended to them. And so I think receiving correction is one of those things that'll be present if we submit to the gospel and to the wisdom of God. Second thing, I think, is there will be evidence in our lives of the riches of Christ. In verse 5, Paul goes on, he says, that you were, or continuing the thought from verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says enriched in everything, I mean, you could take it to say because of the location of the church that they were like materially prosperous and, and really wealthy and, and that was part of their riches. But, and I wouldn't necessarily say that, was, that would be wrong, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Not to mention that kind of riches pale in comparison to the spiritual riches that Paul is mentioning here in these few verses. When he's talking about their riches, he's talking about their speech and understanding of who Jesus was, their abundance of spiritual gifts, and their faithful anticipation of the Lord's return. Those are beautiful things to be said of a church. And it says all utterance and knowledge or testimony of Christ, right? The word utterance means continuous speaking or discourse. The things that you say and the things that you know or understand about who Jesus is, your doctrine of who Jesus is, right? Coming short in no spiritual gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had everything in these three verses. They had everything that we as a church should desire, this is what we should desire and hope to be known for. If the, the sin wasn't present, you didn't have the, the rest of, of this book and the correction and the admonition that Paul brings, and you just had these three verses, you would talk about Corinth and you'd be like, man, that is a church who knows Jesus. That is a church who talks about Jesus. That is a church who is filled with spiritual giftings. And that is a church who is excited and anticipating the return of the Lord. That sounds like a pretty good thing. Right? Like, that's a church. Like, I can, I can get on board with being described as that type of a church, right? Like, those are good things. And hopefully things that we desire to be said of us. How is it that these things were present within the church, within a church that was perfectly positioned to have an impact on the culture? How is it that that type of a church is known more for their sin than for these three verses? the next 15 or so chapters, whatever, Corinth, addressed all that. How is it they're known more for that 
than for these three verses. How do they get to a place where sexual sins that were not even present in the world were amongst the church? Just a couple chapters over, verse f- chapter 5. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. <laughs> what is that? It's that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. How is it possible to have all these things present and still have this attitude towards sin that instead of being repentant and repulsed, that they have allowed sin to exist in this way within the church, they are instead proud that it exists within the church? My opinion is simply that they lost focus on the gospel and they tried to be too relevant to the culture. It would be easy for this church with this type of sin to say, oh, look how loving and accepting we are. But where's love without truth? It would be easy for them to say, oh, we're relevant to the culture around us, but we still love Jesus, so that makes it okay. That covers it. Okay, but where is the demonstration of the power of the message of the gospel if your lives don't look any different than the culture around you? And so, just in those two ideas that had infiltrated the church, it's not hard to look around and, and see that the same things, same, same things are being said by some churches today. But again, it's not the church, it's the individual that allows that to happen. So let's do a self-evaluation real quick from the things that are mentioned here, these riches. And he speaks of all utterance and knowledge. What would the world say about the way that you speak about Jesus or your understanding of him or his word? Has the testimony of Christ, the deep rooting of the gospel, taken hold in your heart and has resulted in the use of the spiritual gifts that God has given you? Following into that next verse there, when it talks about coming short and no gift, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of people here that attend this church, that call this church home. If you're here this, this morning, you know, you're part of the body of Christ. If you're a guest, there's a lot of people here. Are we lacking in spiritual gifts? The church is only lacking in spiritual gifts if the people within the church aren't using the gifts that they've been given. Are you serving the church or is it just here to serve you? And if you know what the spiritual gift is that God has given you, are you exercising it and using it for the edification of the body? And if you don't know what that gift is, or don't know what they all are, when Will comes back, he's going you know, to go into all that and dive into that even deeper. But I would encourage you, if you don't know what that is, desire it now and start praying about it now. Don't wait until then. Say, Lord, show me. What is the gift that you've given me? How can I serve in the body? What have you called me to do? What have you equipped me to do? And I would almost bet, at least I know this is how it worked in my life, the gift that God gives you is the gift you probably either don't want or you're least comfortable using. <laughs> but you have that willingness to just go before him and say, Lord, I, whatever comes, I want to use it for you. Whatever, regardless of the anxiety, I'm going to do my duty to be obedient to you. So ask the Lord what, what that is, what that gifting might be, so he can reveal that to you. 
then thirdly, he says that they were eagerly waiting. This is a position of the heart, but it's also an active waiting. It is an intense yearning for his return, right? And that intense yearning develops and stirs you up to love and good works, utilizing the spiritual gifts that God has given you, right? It's not just an eagerly waiting by sitting on our front porch, right? Unless it's Will's front porch, because he likes to sit on his front porch a lot, as we found out over the past couple weeks. (laughs) Keep bringing it back up. But it's active. What's the point of the Lord giving us the spiritual gifts to be used to serve the body if he's just saying, hey, eagerly wait for my return by sitting around? It's an active waiting. It's an eagerly waiting by earnestly working, demonstrating that our faith is alive. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, you don't have to turn there, just one verse I'm going to read to you real quick. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 4. I love this verse. It's so simple, but it's so challenging to me. Solomon says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Basically what that means, if you go out waiting for the right conditions to do the work and be obedient, you'll either never begin the work or you'll never see the results. If you go out looking at the world around, and that the world around causes you to just shy back away into your home, you're never going to go forth and begin the work that the Lord has called you to do. Or if you go out there and the work has begun, and like we read in our scripture reading, some, you know, one plants, one waters, the Lord gives the increase. Someone else is planted, you're supposed to be the one going to water, and you're like, eh, it's kind of rough out there, and you don't ever see the results. And so is that the position of your heart and your life this morning? Are you eagerly waiting, yearning for his return, but doing it in a way that stirs you to love and good works, that gets you to go out to be obedient, to use the gift that God has given you? Well, I, can, I can tell you confidently, I've never eagerly waited more in my life. I've never wanted to see him more. I've never wanted to be home more. But I've also never wanted to bring more people with me. So regardless of where you might fail in those areas, in, reg- in the things that you say or your knowledge of Jesus, the, the giftings that you have or haven't figured out what it is yet or whether it's a position of your heart and eagerly waiting, regardless of that, there's two beautiful truths that we'll close with to hold on to no matter what it is that you're going through. Beginning in verse 8, it speaks of eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you are indeed in Christ, if you are a new creation, if you are born again here this morning, I can confidently tell you, regardless of where you might fail, that you will stand before Jesus face to face, blameless. That nothing that you have done in your life will ever be held against you. That you stand in him. Your righteousness is as filthy rags He sees his righteousness upon you. You will stand before him glorified, free from sin, free from shame. And you will lay your crown at his feet and worship because he is the one who got you to that place. He is the one that brought you there. He was faithful. He will confirm you to the end. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. What he starts, he does not shy away. He finishes. He doesn't walk away from a job. He's going to get you there and you will stand before him blameless. So no matter how much you're stumbling along the way, have confidence that he's going to get you across that finish line. 
Maybe you just barely make it. Doesn't mean he's any less faithful. He got you there. And you're going to still worship him in awe and surrender, knowing that he's the one that got you there. So know you will stand before him blameless. And secondly, remember that God is faithful. This fellowship that we have with one another and with God himself is only because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It was by him that we have been called into the fellowship. That God's faithfulness was demonstrated towards us first by the cross. His faithfulness was demonstrated by saying, I'm not going to leave you where you're at and I will get you across that finish line. Here's how I know. Look at my son. Look what he's done for you. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful, amen? And we just sit and rest in that truth. And this is why Paul could have that confidence in the Corinthian church that even in the presence of such sin, such wrong living, such wrong ways of thinking, and such examples that the culture had infiltrated the church, Paul could say, uh, no, <laughs> God is faithful. He's begun this work in you. He's going to hold up his end of the bargain. There's ample evidence of the work that God is doing in your life, and so I know that he will be faithful to take you to the end if you receive this correction and if you make a change. And so if you see a brother or sister struggling, or if that's you this morning, if you've confronted them, if you've showed them the word, if you're frustrated or disappointed that it seems like things just aren't sinking in and there just isn't any change in their life, remember this morning, guys, God is faithful. Keep loving them. Keep praying for them. Keep interceding for them because the Lord is going to bring them through. If they truly know who he is, he's going to bring them through. Encourage them with that truth. That no matter what it is that's before them, if they're crawling on their hands and knees, Encourage them with the hope, hope that does not disappoint, not hope that is wishy-washy, that we just throw it up and we hope it lands somewhere kind of good, but blessed assurance, a hope of truly knowing that the Lord is going to bring them through. The Lord will bring them across that finish line, regardless of what it is that faces them on the day-to-day. And so as the worship team comes up, I just want to leave you guys with that thought, that encouragement. And we'll continue on next week if you guys are still want to come back and hear me share again I'll be here next week and we'll look at the third thing that if our focus is the gospel in every aspect of our life and if we are submitted to the wisdom of God our ability to receive correction our understanding and desire to utilize and operate in the riches that he has given us and then the third thing we'll look at next week is our unity with one another but if you're struggling this morning no just be comforted Lord if there's an area where I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what the world would say about how I speak about Jesus, or maybe I don't speak about Jesus enough so they don't even know that I know who he is. Or maybe it's, Lord, I've been living way too much on the linear here. I do not desire the revelation of your son as much as I should, and that doesn't impact my life as much as it should. Then give that to the Lord this morning as we worship. Let's all stand.